podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, church family. It is a privilege to be with you today. Today we are continuing this Advent season, and for the next three weeks, we're going to be taking a slow walk through the prologue of the Gospel of John, one of the most uh, beautiful paragraphs and sections of Scripture ever written. This is from John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Blessed Lord, who's caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. This morning, I'd like to begin with one of the more famous thought experiments from world history, world philosophy, to be technical. Imagine for a moment a a deep and dark cave. And inside of this cave, there have been people who have lived there their entire lives. These people are actually chained in bondage um, to this cave. They, They are unable to escape. And this is the only life that they've ever known, is darkness and in bondage. Now, for the most part, cave dwellers live a gloomy and confused life. Their time, most of the time, is spent on merely just trying to survive. But there is a faint light that is flickering. There's a small fire that casts shadows onto the wall, and the prisoners are able to see those shadows. And so, in order to pass the time, some of the more wise prisoners begin to have long discussions about those shadows. They, they try to name them. They try to describe them. They try to discuss the meaning and the significance to these shadows. But one day, in the deep dark, there is one man who suddenly is able to be free. He is able to escape his chains, and he's able to do something that no one else has ever dared to do, and that is to leave the cave, to see what life is like outside of the cave. So he climbs past the fire, he climbs past the shadows and towards the mouth of the cave, and he, is, he approaches the mouth of the cave, he is able to be startled by something that he has never seen, that he has never encountered or experienced before, and that is the pure, bright, midday light. Courageously, he steps outside of the cave, and, and he feels this unfamiliar, very sublime sense of joy and anticipation. And although he is initially blinded by the light because of how dim his eyes are, he excitedly stumbles through this new experience. He's able to, to feel the dewy grass on his feet. He's able to, to hear a rustling river that is next to him. He's able to smell the fragrance of the flowers that are in the valley around him. 
And his brain is just striving to build categories for this barrage of new experience that is coming at him really suddenly. He is able to open his eyes, and at last he's able to make some sense out of the world that he is in. He's able to divide the world around him into shapes and colors and forms. And he knows at once that this indeed is the real world. This is truth. It's a world that is beyond the imprisonment of darkness and the fleeting shadows that he once called truth. This is a parable, and it's a really famous parable from world history because it was made by one of the most famous philosophers, a man named Plato. And in his book, The Republic, Plato writes the story that has been memorized and known and celebrated as the myth of the cave. Essentially, it's a parable about humanity's enduring quest for truth. That cave represents our ignorance. The chains represent our limitations. The shadows represent our conjectures or false knowledge. And lastly, the man who was able to climb outside of the cave represents, as Plato would have it, the philosopher. The one who, by virtue of his reason, his moral integrity and willpower, is able to rise above ignorance and be able to go into a world of light. You know, Plato's story is compelling. It's memorable. It strikes a chord of yearning within our hearts because deep within us, we know that there is more to this world than just matter and motion. We know that we are limited by what we don't know. We know that we are limited by our ignorance. And we know that there is truth outside of us. And we know that there is such thing as goodness and beauty. And we long for that world of light. But there's also a very significant problem with Plato's story. He tells us that we're bound by our ignorance. He tells us that there is a world of truth and light. But he never tells us how we are to become unbound. How we are to loose ourselves of the chains that bind us so that we might rise to the light. Human history has shown us over and over again that mere human reason is not enough. That we are radically unable to save and to deliver ourselves. Our rationality has led to some very good things. Advancements in science and technology, but just as often our rationality has also enabled us to have more and more efficient ways to perform war and destruction, injustice and poverty. Our morality can lead us to good ethical thoughts, but it can also lead us to hypocrisy and moral elitism. Our willpower can oftentimes turn in upon itself towards dark self-absorption and dark ambition that hurts our neighbors. In short, we constantly are erasing to climb out of our cave only to find more shadows, only to find more and more darkness. And that is the great problem of humanity, that we are radically unable to save ourselves. We are not smart enough. We're not good enough. We're not strong enough to attain the truth. And in our darkness, we are unable in our own strength to rise into the world of light. But what if, what if in our absolute inability, what if in our weakness, instead of striving to get to that inaccessible truth, truth itself came to us? What if there was light that chose to invade our darkness? What if a gracious God would enter into our pain, our brokenness, our destruction, so that we might be free? 
As it turns out, that is the exact claim that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 is making. Now, the gospel according to John is one of the most important books that's ever been written. And it was written by a very unlikely man. It was written by a simple fisherman from Galilee who was having a very normal life. That is until he encountered Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And as happens when you encounter Jesus Christ, everything changed for John, who would become the Apostle John, when he met Jesus. After witnessing the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, John the fisherman becomes a key leader in the most important movement of history, and that is the rise and the spread of the Christian gospel. Like many other disciples, John devotes his life to preaching the good news about Jesus and planting faith communities throughout the ancient world who believed in Jesus and worshipped him as king. And toward the end of his life, church history teaches us that where John did his last ministry was in an ancient city called Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, and it was a very strategic, a very important city in the ancient world because it was kind of this intersection of a lot of different cultures. It was at the crossroads of the Middle East and the European cities of Athens and Rome. It connected Europe and Asia and even had a lot of commerce that would come up from Africa. It was this multicultural melting pot. And as such, the church community that arose in Ephesus was a uniquely multicultural community. It was a place, as the book of Ephesians teaches us, where the, the distinction between Jew and Gentile was breaking down and that, that people from various cultures were becoming one in Christ in a way that the ancient world had never seen or thought possible before. And even though this is a beautiful thing, it does create certain challenges if you are a teacher of the Bible. Because after all, how are you going to communicate such important scriptural truth among people groups that have very different cultural backgrounds, very different intellectual histories, very different vocabularies when they're describing spiritual ideas. How is it possible for the Apostle John to preach the gospel in such a way that is going to transcend culture? How will he impart the message of absolute truth itself breaking into human history and becoming a part of the cosmos, a part of our world? The answer is that the Holy Spirit is going to inspire John to choose very simple words, very simple phrases that really all cultures have used when they're trying to talk about these big ideas. And then he's going to load those simple words, those simple phrases with profound new meaning and light of Jesus Christ. So for the rest of our time today, I want to take a deeper look at these first five verses of John. And we're going to simply look at three phrases that occur in this text. And we're going to unpack what each one of these phrases mean. Number one, we're going to look at the word of God. Number two, we're going to look at the life of God. And number three, we're going to look at the light of God. So point number one, the word of God. Let's take a look again at the first three verses of our reading today. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Now that phrase, the word, is one of the richest terms in the Bible. And for John's initial hearers or readers, 
They would have heard that phrase, and depending on their cultural background, would have probably connected to it in various and different ways. And so if the initial hero was from more of a Greek or Roman background, they would have recognized a deep philosophical history that's associated with this term. The Greek word is the logos or halagos. It is a term that has a rich history in Western philosophy. The logos was a word for Heraclitus, a philosopher, and for him it meant the unifying force that grounded all of reality. For Stoic philosophers, which was a very popular philosophic school at this time, the word logos meant a rationality that organized all of knowledge and all of existence. And for our old friend Plato, the logos was connected to true and justified belief. And so when John is using this term, and he's introducing his book, talking about the knowledge of the Logos. He is claiming that he knows that he has encountered ultimate truth, that he has encountered the ultimate reality that stands behind all things. And that, that claim alone really would have got the attention of many people from a Greek background. They would lean in and say, what does this guy have to say? But then they would have also been shocked because in addition to claiming that he has somehow encountered ultimate reality, the logos, the truth, John is going to claim something more. He's going to make the claim that this logos is not just an organizing principle, but that ultimately he is a divine person. That this is indeed a personal God. Likewise, that term logos or the word would have connected deeply to people from a Jewish background as well. Because anyone who was familiar with Jewish scripture, as soon as they heard the very first words of John, they would have heard something else. They would have heard an echo of the very first words of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1. This is Genesis chapter 1 as well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, the word, let there be light. And there was light. This connection between John 1 and Genesis 1 is both important, but it would have also been scandalous to a Jewish mind. John is saying that the Logos is not just the active agent of creation. He's saying this Logos is God himself. That the Logos is God's ultimate self-disclosure, his revelation, and it is the climactic event in God's story that he has woven onto human history and revealed through Scripture. This is how N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian, describes this reality. He says, In the beginning, no Bible reader could have seen that phrase and not at once thought of the start of Genesis, the first book in the Old Testament. Whatever else John is about to tell us, he wants us to see his book as the story of God and the world. Not just the story of one character in one place and one time. This book is about the creator God acting in a new way with his much-loved creation. It's about the way in which the long story which began in Genesis has reached its climax that the creator had always intended. So when John uses that term, the Logos, when he says the word, the word, what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming that God is the organizing rationality and the truth behind all things, but yet he is also a divine person. That 
He is the creator who stands outside of the constraints and the confinements of space and time, yet he is able to reveal himself within creation. That he is, this Logos is the ultimate revelation of God, yet he is God. He is the God who engineered the minute machinery of human DNA, yet he is also the God who holds trillions of galaxies in the very palm of his hand. His light is more brilliant than the sun. He is ultimate reality, the sum of all knowledge and truth. He is the cause and the purpose of all existence. He is life outside of the cave. He's the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. The climax of the long story of Israel revealed in the Old Testament. He is transcendent and holy, yet he is near. He is the God of glory, and he has made himself known. The only response we could ever have to the truth of the word of God is awestruck wonder and worship. That leads us to the next point, point number two, the life of God. Look at a moment for just a minute for verse four. In him was life. and The life was the light of men. It is in him, it's in the word, the logos, in God that there is life. And this life exists for a very specific purpose. It is the light of men, or rather, as our text says, it was the light of men. Something has fractured, something has fallen. See, men and women were created in the image and likeness of God. We were created to worship God. We were created to bear his image, to reflect his image. He is the source of our life. He is the source of ultimate joy. But rather than worshiping God and submitting to him as Lord... We chose to worship ourselves and to place ultimate value on things in creation. Rather than looking to God as our ultimate source of rest and comfort and hope and joy and fulfillment and purpose, we shifted our gaze to lesser gods, to counterfeit gods. We try to find our self-worth and romance and personal achievement or political teams. We look for rest in substance or in entertainment. We are cosmically estranged from God, and as a result, we are estranged from one another. We are, as Plato reminded us, bound in a a cave of sorts, of ignorance, self-absorption, and isolation. And we are, in our own strength, unable to free ourselves. Yet we know that there is something beyond us, that there is a source of life that we yearn for. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has placed eternity into the heart of man. That we have this beacon of hope within our heart that yearns for a source of spiritual life. I want you to know that 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 infinite void that you have in your heart can only be filled by an infinite God. So are you restless? Only in God will you find your rest. Are you despairing? Only God will give you true joy. Are you weak? Only God will give you true strength. Are you anxious? Only God can give you hope. Are you bitter and angry? Only God will give you peace. As St. Augustine, a great 4th century Christian, once wrote, You awaken us, Lord, to delight in your praise, for you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until our hearts rest in you. In God and only in God is true life. And this life is also the light of men. Point number three, 
the light of God. This phrase, light of men, is very crucially important in the text as well. It's stressing that God's self-revelation is essential for us to know what is true about God. We are chained in sin and ignorance. Our, our hearts are darkened and blackened with sin. That means that we'll never be able to truly know all there is to know about God by simple logical reasoning or, or by scientific investigation. We might be able to see signs within creation that point to the existence of God. We might discern God's fingerprints in creation. After all, Psalm chapter 19 tells us that the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. However, in order to truly know God, the only way we can know him is if he reveals himself to us. It's if he chooses in his grace and his mercy to make himself known. And he does that in such a gracious way that our feeble minds, our limited understanding can actually grasp. And the good news, according to John, is that this is who God is and this is what he has done. Notice in that final verse of our reading that there's a shift into the present tense. John says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. God's revelation and reality is an ever-present reality. Right now, even as I am proclaiming the word of God, the spirit of God is actively illuminating our hearts that we might know God through Christ Jesus. And that revelation is more real and is more powerful than the forces of darkness. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Just as darkness must flee, Whenever you come into a dark room and turn on the lights, no power or sin or evil or force of darkness is able to withstand the overwhelming might of Jesus Christ. There is no spiritual darkness that is greater than the light of Christ. Although our sin and our shame are real and they are great, our Savior is greater. Although our suffering and our sadness is real, There's a day coming when he will wipe away every tear and mourning will be no more. That image of light shining in the darkness is also an echo of Genesis chapter 1. Showing us that the God who creates is also a God who is able to recreate. He's a God who is able to redeem. The Apostle Paul tells us, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whatever your darkness is, whatever your sin is, whatever you are suffering or have suffered, know that God, who's been revealed in this gospel, is able to make creation out of chaos. He delights He delights in making broken things beautiful. He is eternally and everlastingly a God of hope. But again, we must return to that myth of the cave. How can we be freed of sin? How can we be freed of our chains to know this truth? How are we able to escape the darkness of our ignorance and our sin? Why is it that we are invited to have and to actually take hold of such a hope? Well, John, as it turns out, has written an entire gospel account to answer just that question. And I'll summarize what he's going to say. That there was one 
who lived in a world of glory and light, who out of his own grace and mercy chose to descend into our darkness. He came into our cave. He came into our muck and mire and and the grossness of our sin. He took our chains and our penalty upon himself. He spoke truth into our confusion and chaos and shadows so that we might be free. Jesus Christ, the word of God, the life of God, the very light of God, endured our darkness upon a cross so that we might enter his world of light. And his light has triumphed over all darkness. And that truth, that hope, is what Advent is all about. The word Advent simply means a dramatic arrival, a breaking in. We observe this season because light has begun to shine in our darkness. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and launched through the work and life of Jesus Christ. And soon, His kingdom will come in fullness and glory. Because of this good news, we must respond with longing, but with hope. So if you're a Christian, I encourage you, rejoice that light has come into this world. That light right now is dawning in the midst of our darkness. And if you're not yet a Christian, I invite you to embrace this truth, this good news, this hope today. It is a hope that you can never earn for yourself, that you can't perform well enough to achieve. It is a hope that we receive only with the empty hands of faith, knowing that Christ has come into our darkness and set us free when we could not free ourselves. As Paul wrote to the Romans, for you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So, Redeemer Christian Church, may we worship and wonder at the infinite God who has revealed himself to us by his word, who came into our cave and rescued us. May we find our life in him and in him alone. May we take hope that Jesus Christ, who is the light, shines into our deepest darkness. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank you that the light is stronger than darkness. Or that your truth is greater than deception. That you have given us good news. That the only thing that we can do is simply trust that it's true. To rest in what you have done on our behalf. So, Lord, let that truth resonate in our souls today. And I pray for those that are suffering, for those that came into this room heavy laden with burdens, with suffering, that today that they would know your hope, that today that they would feel your presence surround them, that today they would again put their heart's hope in the truth of your coming kingdom. So, Lord, would you give comfort And rest to our hearts today, the rest that is only found in you. Let us in this season eagerly long for a greater revelation, a greater knowledge of who Christ is. Let us grow in grace and knowledge of Christ together as a church family. And let us be a people who live in anticipation of that glorious kingdom that is coming very soon. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We worship you. We commit our hearts and time to you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.